but also did did James give uh, his opinion on on our favorite film last time? I can't remember whether he gave feedback. He did not. He did not, James. <laughs> Finally watched. Yes. Again. It's been but, uh, I don't know what 15, 20 years or something. Yeah. And it was a pain to get. I couldn't get it to stream properly. I eventually just had to buy it. And then I sat and made the family watch it with me. And how was that? There were parts I really loved and then that were good. It was also very 90. Oh, yeah. Very 90s. I, I, I needed to find some Jinko jeans and bust <laughs> out some Cunningham books. I know. It's true. I think the Stevie Nicks really just makes the film. It's just perfect. It is perfect. Just for our listeners as well, because I didn't really say the, say the name of the film. We're talking about Practical Magic. And if you've been listening for a length of time, um, we've all watched Practical Magic and we all love it. And James hadn't. So one of our tasks that we gave to James was to watch Practical, Practical Magic. So well done, James. We, we do all love it. I'm not sure if we all love it quite as much as you love it, Peter. Like, <clears throat> I love it. Uh, but I don't. I'm not sure. I think you're a little next level. I think it's the like, it's just the like, romanticism element for me I just love it like the aesthetics and everything and like yeah witchcraft let's <laughs> let's draw a pentagram on somebody's body with with squirty cream let's do it let's get the birds and the long pins I love it <laughs> <laughs> no pins in the eyeballs was, that's that's my line wow anyway any well hell and welcome to circle talk a podcast for seekers initiates and the curious by four Alexandrian witches with endless different opinions. We're your host. I'm Josie. I'm a high priestess and coven leader near Melbourne, Australia. I am G. I am a high priestess and coven leader from near Boston, Massachusetts. Hi, my name is Peter. I am a high priest and coven leader from South Wales. And hi, I'm James, a high priest and coven leader from just outside New Orleans. We are a podcast where we talk about Alexandrian witchcraft and explore differing opinions on how the Alexandrian tradition is practiced in various covens and around the globe. Listeners are reminded that while we are initiates of the Alexandrian tradition, we only speak for ourselves and not for the tradition as a whole, which is an impossible thing to do. This is episode nine. If this is your first episode, welcome. You may want to take a moment to pause this and go back to listen to our introductory episodes, episode zero, introduction and episode one definition or check them out after you enjoy this one Uh, with that said today we are going to talk about pedestals and plunges including charismatic leaders how they fit into orthopraxis religion who was the king of the witches whether or not we need such a position and pagan initiate authors plus a bunch of other related topics all within the framework of initiatory wicca Uh, before we delve into those topics uh, in their book, The Inner Mysteries, Progressive Witchcraft and the Connection to the Divine, Janet Farrar and Gavin Bone uh, published a statement that the elders of the Alexandrian tradition had made after Alexander's died in 1988. And the statement reads, a statement of the Council of Elders of the Alexandrian Tradition. A meeting of the elders of the Alexandrian tradition was held on Thursday 12th. May 1988. The law of the craft has always been that a king is chosen by the craft when need arises. After due consideration, a unanimous motion was carried that there is no need for a king of the witches. This is fortunate as there is no one properly prepared for the role. 
Alexanders led the hidden children of the goddess into the light. It was a task well done, and it was his last and most earnest wish that they should continue their work into the light. Such a council has never again been convened. This officially ended the idea of kings and queens of Wiccans. Now, this is relevant, I believe, to our listeners because it is hard to know much about the Alexandrian tradition's roots without knowing who Alex is or who the king of the witches was. But keeping that in mind, today we're going to talk about cults and charismatic leaders, the dangers of such an orthodox. What about religious leaders within a Nishtori Wicca, Wiccan covens? The whole king of the witches bit, why there is no need for a king. Big name pagans and author worship, why the real learning begins when the teacher comes off the pedestal, and why autonomy and sovereignty to self. So let's start with cults and charismatic leaders who would like to touch on that a bit. Yeah, I mean, last episode, I think we talked quite a bit about cults and various red flags. Um, and some of that does have to do with the leadership. It's them, whoever the leadership of the organization is. Um, but where charismatic leaders I think are a really universal danger, even where you don't have organized religion, just because leadership always exists and there are always people who are willing to fill power vacuums. Um, And we all know those people who are charismatic for both good and for evil, right? Or maybe not evil, I guess is is a strong word, good or for ill. Like Dr. Evil. (laughs) Can you imagine one of those in Wicca? (laughs) Yes. Most of us have yes. cats, so <laughs> that, that there is wicked strife with stories of bad leadership and bad coven leaders. Sadly, it happened. Um, I personally think that part of that is because charismatic leaders are very attractive to individuals who might have attraction to the new religious movement. Um, the new religious movement is what fits the need, and that's why they went seeking. But charismatic leaders are typically the ones who stand out to them. That's gets attracted. Um, and that, that's that's true across all new religions. But there's a danger in it. There's definitely a danger in it within Anishatori Wicca um, and the greater contemporary pagan. I think witchcraft and I don't know what the proper, I don't want to say fringe. I mean, new religious movements, but just outside the mainstream, I guess, religious movements also attract a certain kind of flamboyant leader, right? Somebody who's a bit loud, a bit odd. Um, And if you don't have belief to tie you together, if there's not, um, if there's not a required central belief, then it's rather easy for a charismatic leader to step in and make something up to pull followers in. I think it's worth mentioning though, that like, it's certainly not a majority. It's something that you probably will come across in in some leaders, but the majority of our leaders are good people doing. Yes, agreed. Yeah, I think actually, like, oh, sorry, go ahead, Peter. No, it's fine. You you go first. I was just gonna say, I I think this is where um, part of you know why it's such a good thing that we are uh, a very spread out religious group, right? Like, if there's a charismatic leader, they're unlikely to be influencing people beyond their like immediate geographic area ideally i wouldn't necessarily say that um being a charismatic leader is necessarily a bad thing i think when we look back like if we all look back 
to our experiences in school, we always had that that one teacher or maybe a handful of teachers whose personality and charisma just captured you. Um, and I and I suppose I don't necessarily see charisma as being always a negative thing, but I suppose it depends on what that person is offering. You know, if it's about following me and drinking the Kool Aid, then yeah, definitely not a good thing. Um, but yeah, I think I think it all comes down to to that learning with that with that person. I, I you know I completely agree in that charisma is not necessarily a bad thing, and it's not always a bad thing. I think it has to do with the relationship yeah. in which you develop with the person who is charismatic. Are yeah. you are you turning your autonomy over to them? Are you allowing them to dictate beliefs in your personal life and things like that? It's just there's a danger in it. It doesn't mean it's necessarily dangerous. Right. Yeah, I think um, if we want to set up sort of this contrast, which a couple of us have have mentioned, this difference between orthodoxic religions and the way that they treat leadership, um, the idea of popes or the idea of um, like ecclesiastical councils and whatnot versus orthopraxic religions and how much more individually centered they are, I guess, or... um, I think that's the dichotomy that we're trying to express here, right? As we're talking about like the idea of a king of the witches and like where such a role could possibly exist in a religion where there is no belief, central belief that ties us all together, right? Whereas in a in a Catholic religion, for example, of course, um, because there's a, a belief, you can put somebody at the top to sort of mandate and control and set out what that belief should be. But if you don't have a central belief, I think practice can be a lot harder to dictate. We, we, we are definitely not a religion of popes or where you need a priest to be your connection between you and your deity. Um, from an orthopraxis perspective, it is very common in some of the Eastern religions to have gurus who very much dictate the practice. And you turn over your spiritual life completely to them. But we're still not them. It's... It's a shared practice, not one that's dictated. I think it depends where somebody is on that on that journey. Like, if there's something I don't know anything about, I'm more than happy for somebody to to kind of you know tell me. Um, but then I suppose as as you develop on your path, you you start to uh, diverge and you make up your own mind about certain information. I know that we don't have one central kind of belief system, but I remember when I was coming to Wicca, um, I, I, I didn't really know anything about Wicca and divinity. So I was quite happy for that first coven that I was in to kind of give me the basics and then say, right, off you go, kind of think about it for yourself now. Um, yeah, so I, I wouldn't necessarily say that we shouldn't have people telling us what to believe if you're coming at it from kind of ground zero, if that makes any sense. It does, and we certainly need some form of of teachers and leadership and the priesthood. Right. I, I think we're going to touch on a little bit of that in more depth in a minute. But I, I don't disagree that there's there's some need to pass on information. Yeah. It's about the relationship between the, the student and the teacher. It's not it's not worship. It's it's not what you say is end all be all. Mm. And if our listeners wanna just maybe jump back to a previous episode where we spoke about like all the red flags and everything. We, we discussed that at length about, you know, what to look out for, run if you need to. <laughs> so all so of I'm... that having been said, who was the king of the witches? 
I think that depends on who you ask, but I know that, you know, from an Alexandrian point of view, Alex was was said to be the, the king of the witches. And I know when, when initiates called him that, it caused a big stir with other initiates, like from the Gardnerian tradition. Um, but I just, I just kind of want to jump in because there's been a book published by June uh, Johns called King of the Witches, The World of Alexanders. Um, and in, in this book, June writes that Alex was elected the King of the Witches in, or at least the Alexandrian Witches in 1965, uh, because, and these, these were the reasons that, that June gives, because Alex was supposed to have direct uh, descendant, be a direct descendant from hereditary Welsh witches and was equipped with knowledge that outstrips the witches that he was teaching. Um, just a note as well, I don't really recommend uh, this book just because it is filled with rubbish, really fabrications, mis and I've, I've, there's a lot of information that is just really misleading. Um, I think some of what June was writing was based on Alex's own fabrications. Um, but just to kind of put the record straight as well, Alex was not a descendant of hereditary Welsh witches. Um, within Wales, we've got kind of our own magical tradition as well, which is, I think, more or less still underground. Um, I think I know maybe two people that practice it. But yeah, Alex wasn't a descendant of Welsh witches. He didn't get initiated by his Welsh-speaking grandmother, Mary Bibby. Uh, there wasn't any nipping of any scrotum, because that comes up quite often. Um, Alex never met his grandmother. She died in 1907 and Alex was born in 1926. So that kind of blows the my grandmother was a witch uh, story out of out of the water. I mean, she might have been, but any influence that she had on him was probably non-existent. I'm not going to tell people not to read this book. I'm one of those people that you tell me not to read the book. The first thing I do is go and read that book. Read the book. Yeah. Um, instead, I'm going to tell you to read. If you read this book, read it with context and understanding that it was Alex's propaganda piece, his vanity piece. It is everything that he wanted to showcase to the public. And some of that is full of, as we'll call, gray witchcraft. You never know where the truth lies. Um, just keep that in mind. Some of it's entertaining to read. Um, and I think all initiates should read it at some point, not necessarily reading, uh, leading up to initiation. Maybe later when you have the relevant to know what you're getting into. I would just say not to read it just because I don't want people to waste their time just because it's full of rubbish. <laughs> well, at least at least I think anyway. Uh, another yeah, good book is uh, Coin for the Ferryman. It's a more modern biography um, that I don't remember. Dude wrote it. Jamal. Jamal wrote it. There we go. And it's more factual. It, it is missing some, some information from my understanding because some of the people he went to interview were like, nope. That's just between us and Alex, and we're not sharing it with the public. And that's cool. Not everything needs to be known. Um, yeah, sorry. The author is, of that is Jamal DeFiosa. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, who's been in the Wiccan community for some time. Um, he's an Alexandrian priest up here in the Boston area as well. High priest in the Boston area. Thank you, G. You are welcome. So uh, a little bit about Alex. I think it's important to know he was not born king of the witches. So it's not a hereditary title, and it's one that was given. Um, so when you say he was when you say he was king of the witches, well, he was. He was legitimately king of the witches for the Alexandrian tradition. I don't think that sphere of influence went any further than us. Um, it was needed at the time, and I say that because the publicity that he did was 
extremely important to the growth of the craft and later tempered bait. I would say the same exact thing of Gardner. Gardner was also all about publicity. Some of the early scandals in Gardnerian craft happened because they wanted Gardner to just shut up and stop being in the public eye. Um, with that said, I know that Maxine uh, Sanders, Alex's ex-wife, described him as a sacrificial king. The, the limelight is not an easy place to be in. And one of my old high priests called him the king of misrule. I just, I thought those were interesting tidbits. I like the king of misrule because I do feel like Alex has a decent amount of chaotic neutral um, energy. Like if I was going to write write up an alignment for him, I think that's where I would stick him. One of um, my old priests would say, everybody's got a bullshit artist somewhere in their upline. Um, and I think that's very pertinent of Alexandrian Wicca, but also Gardnerian Wicca as well, right? Like we have this history, there are there are leg pullers <laughs> kind of all the way up um, through our history. And yeah, both Sanders and Gardner, um, it, it's easy now to look back and go, what were you doing putting yourself out there like that? But at the time, this is what caused so many people to find Wicca, was reading articles about these people or reading about their kind of exploits. Um, Wicca would look very different were it not for these two men and what they did. Yeah, I was going to jump in and say as well, if it weren't for Gerald Gardner and Alexander's and a lot of the other early initiates, a lot of us wouldn't be where we're at. You know, we might be on some other witchcraft path. Um, but the the beauty of this, to to link it to us, is that had had we not become initiates of Alexandrian witchcraft, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have met. You know, so that's like the little heart right there. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thanks some big heart emojis. No, I think uh, I think this is really interesting, and um, maybe this is a future episode, or maybe it'll fully fall out in this one here but there's something to this idea of there's a lot of there was some sketchiness in what was happening in the early period of the development of traditional wicca and that was necessary right we were sort of it was a very small group of people who were practicing it was semi underground semi trying to be pulled up um into the light as it as was mentioned earlier um and so some sketchiness maybe had to happen. Some people may well have fudged things along the line. Certainly we know there were uh, there was a lot of like weekend uh, weekend initiations, right? People would like pop in um, to the UK, meet up with a coven, get their first, maybe first and second in the same weekend, copy the book and like head out. And it's really only in the last few decades that I think because Wicca's grown so large, traditional Wicca has grown so large, um, that people have sort of, especially in the US, started developing this culture of like, dear God, like we need some, we need some rules and structure to sort of tie this all together to sort of uh, prevent too much of that from, from happening now. Um, and I understand why, like we talked in the last episode, a big reason that we want to talk about red flags and we've talked about vouching, why vouching is important is to not protect the integrity of, of the religion or our gods, because they're going to be fine, but to protect our reputation and protect seekers. Um, you know, so the larger something gets, the more structures and safeguards you kind of need in place. But without that, some of the bullshit artistry, without some of the showmanship, without some of the quick and dirties that happened, um, 
you know, it's hard to say if Wicca would have fully developed, but it's in the dichotomy between how we started and what they would think about the kind of structures that we've started to put in place culture. It's, and it's really, it's not official, of course, it's just cultural. Um, now it's kind of interesting. So my first coven, we used to uh, read all the same book and kind of discuss it afterwards. And one of my fellow initiates after reading the Jim Jones book that we just mentioned, he said, I call shenanigans. And it was the greatest moment as we all had a good laugh and we're like, yeah, of course, that was a time of shenanigans. But it was also a time of, of, of witchcraft and, and power and beauty. And that's all that wraps together into what witchcraft is. Sometimes you got to put the veil up and not let people know what's going on behind the curtain. Um, so why don't we need a king of the witches Wicca day? For me, it's all about that autonomy. Each coven is autonomous. And therefore, we don't have anybody to answer to apart from the gods. You know, um, yes, we have a degree system as well, but I suppose it's like, fuck around and find out as well. You know, you're responsible for you. You have your high priest and or high priestess and coven elders to guide you. But we don't, we don't need any kings or queens because we are all autonomous. You know, each coven is autonomous. Also, this was like the time of Alexander's and the time even like Dringata's time and, and in those early decades it was about getting a voice and getting seen as witches and, and like putting it out there that I guess basically we exist. Um, I think that's well and truly done now. Go anywhere on the internet, you know, and you'll, you'll hear a lot of voices um, and see a lot of people talking. If anything, as witches, maybe we just need to just shh and, and get on with the work. One of the things I really like when we start thinking about autonomy and sovereignty, hero worship and popes and kings and charismatic leaders is when you look at them, Alex and Gardner were the epitome of autonomy. They took whatever rule book that existed for them and said, fuck it, I'm going to do whatever I want. And they lived up to their sovereignty. And so can we. We, we in my eyes, carry on that crown, each of us. My worry with with autonomy and sovereignty as well, is how far do we go before it is it is completely changed? And I know this kind of this kind of conversation crops up quite often in initiate only spaces about like the initiations, right? How far along do we go and use autonomy in order to say or practice something? Um, that's kind of like one of my only concerns with like, oh yeah, every covenant is autonomous and you know, we gotta live up to our own sovereignty. But we need we need to keep something. We need to keep some things similar because that that gives us that shared experience of the wicker. It it would be really nice if we could get together and have a grand council or something and have most of us agree on like five things. Like just like a checklist of like just five items that stop, you know start with you, five. To start with five, because I, yeah. I don't want it to be a lot. I think, you know, the more I talk to people in our wider community um, from different kinds of lines and different geographic regions, the more I'm like, oh, everybody's got a really interesting twist on what they're doing. There are people who are doing things literally by the book. And there are people who have developed within their lines a lot of additional practices and flavors to what they do. Um, and so I feel, you know, there's very little that I would want to put on a checklist of like what makes you Alexandrian. Um, I've heard rumors that Gardnerians have 
have put to managed to put together a similar list that most of them sort of agree on. Um, and I think that we would probably, probably the same things would, would come up. Um, but that there's something to be said for, uh, Gardner and Alex's ability to, to create a both, what is both a fully fledged tradition in itself and also a framework on which a lot of different people have managed to build a lot of really fascinating things. And I wouldn't I think, want to lose that. I think if it hits the minimum markers, then it's recognized. The problem is codifying what that list is. Very difficult yeah. because every, every single time I have seen someone write one of these lists out, I can look at it and talk about exceptions, both directions. Um, I, I horribly dislike when people talk about how they're Alexandrian in the context of what Gardnerians do because I think the Alexandrian tradition stands on its own, but those lists often will mention things like, oh, well, we do this and the Gardnerians do this, such as taking the measure and whether you keep it or not. It doesn't always work because I know Gardnerians who also practice the Alexandrian method of giving it back. So is that the marker or is it just the fact that we take a measure? Yeah, it hadn't even occurred to me to have a conversation that was like, what makes us Alexandrian? I guess I didn't mean... I didn't mean Alexandrian and not Gardnerian. It never occurred to me like why anybody would care enough to have that conversation, right? I think the conversation really is just what makes a group traditional Wiccan and then however they're labeled based on their lineage is, is however they're labeled. But um, no, I, no, I agree with you. I was just yeah. using that as my as example as markers. Right. I think as well, it's important to mention that we are Alexandrian. We're Alexandrian not because we're not Gardnerian as well. And I think I've mentioned that in, in a previous podcast as well. There are things that make us Alexandrian, which, and I suppose it kind of links in what, what you were just saying, James, about, about the exceptions. You know, we're Alexandrian because we're Alexandrian and we're initiated Alexandrian, not by virtue of not being Gardnerian. Right. Our craft has a family resemblance to the rest of the Alexandrian lineage. That family right. resemblance, as, as the way I like to think of it, might manifest itself slightly differently depending on what branch of the family you're in. Maybe this branch over here has got more red hair than the other parts, so on and so forth. Maybe this other branch has more incense and more wine. We Maybe have lots not. of incense and wine in this branch. <laughs> I can imagine your branch has lots of salt. Linking back to another podcast where James explained about the use of, of salt. You have to cast with salt. It's super important. Because See, I like a, the aesthetic. That's it. That's, I, that's, that's why it's important, because I like the aesthetic. Yeah, I would love that, uh, that, that aesthetic. And we've, we've never, we've, I mean, we use salt, obviously, when we're cleansing and, and blessing the circle area. But we've never used salt um, to actually draw the circle. But it's something that I definitely want to try. There's, there's um, a trick to it. So if you're interested, let me hit me up later and I'll kind of show you this I will this... you need a nail and string and like an old ketchup bottle uh -huh. wow MacGyver this is a complete digression but I often despise some of the like witchcraft memes that I see but I saw one that really got me which was um people saying like how do I spread salts around my house without it being a total mess and then it showed like those um I've the doors, the door stoppers that you like yeah. put in front, draft dodgers that you put in front of like, or like an old stocking, just like fill it with salt as a tube and be like, here, like this is, 
the salt. I was like, yeah. is that genius or am I horrified? I don't know. Uh, a little bit of both, I think. <laughs> so just get several of those, Peter, and put them in a circle. And then cleanup is so easy. Yeah, cleanup is easy. But yeah, we all, I think where we normally practice as a, well, unless we're practicing outside, um, where we normally practice at one of the high priestesses' house, she has carpet. So it wouldn't be an easy trick of sweeping it back up because I know, James, I think you sweep it back up as well. You're going to need a vacuum. Yeah, we're going to need a vacuum. Just maybe a special, uh, we'll consecrate and everything. Don't worry, guys. We'll, we'll, We'll hold it in space and we'll consecrate and we'll have a coven sacred vacuum we can put sigils on it instead of a basin you're gonna have a vacuum yes you have a vacuum (laughs) and then just pull the salt back out every time (laughs) now i was going to use my pizza analogy to talk about tradition and i thought that would be too flippant and now you're talking about a consecrated vacuum well tell us about the pizza so bad about that so tell us about the pizza here we go this is what you're getting so i was at my pizza shop the other day uh, in my local town here in Australia and um, I was buying pizza and it said up on the wall traditional pizza traditional Italian pizza and I was like oh yep and then the first pizza on the list number one Aussie Um, now it doesn't say what's in an Aussie because everybody like people in Australia tend to agree roughly that an Aussie is um, I think it's ham cheese uh, like tomato base and like an egg cracked on top. Yeah, <laughs> the Americans are horrified. An, I'm, 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 I'm not egg. horrified. I put fried egg on my burger. That's I'm normal. All about it. I don't know about normal, but an egg. Yeah. Okay. 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 Look. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. I like pineapple. It's fine. But tradition, right? right? And it got me thinking. And I had this conversation with some friends yesterday about like who decides what makes pizza traditional. And this whole idea of like pizza as we know it. Oh, there's a certification council in Italy. I remember hearing about them. Like they, oh, yeah. look, uh, I, I'm going to look it up. But they I want it in the show notes. Okay. <laughs> Whilst James um, looks that up, I think one of the rules that we should have on this new grand council that we'll set up is that uh, pineapple does actually belong on pizza. Mic drop. No, no that's it. That's <laughs> uh, it. It's no, I'm the, schisming. That's it. What, what differentiates Alexandrian's pineapple? The, the AVPN, the True Napoleon Pizza Association. And I don't know how to say it. In uh, Napolitana? Sure. I'm going <laughs> to drop it in the, the, the notes. <laughs> yeah, we'll put it in the notes. But like, they decided what's pizza, according to them. That is a good way of thinking about it, Josie, because we can't even say, I guess I don't know if other people like or feel, how people feel about white pizza, but like I can't even say that pizza has to have a tomato-based sauce because I've had Alfredo pizzas or like white pizzas. Mm-hmm. Um, like if I had to say like what makes a pizza a pizza, I would I would just start like there's there's like a bread underneath and on mm-hmm. top you put stuff stuff right it's like that's what I'm saying like when we when you're setting up a list of of fundamentals. It has to be a very small list. You're going to have to be very, very broad because like there are dessert pizzas and there are Correct. pizzas with barbecue sauce. And anyway, my point I think was- I might feel that... a certain way about dessert pizza. <laughs> but there anyway. are like, like there are some things like you would probably say a pizza should, should probably not always be round. Like there are some very nebulous, right. like agreed things. But generally, 
Like you could argue until the cows come home. And this whole idea of traditional, like, well, pizza anyway, as we know, it's not like it's like actual traditional Italian pizza doesn't look like the pizza that we, um, it, it's an American thing. So then how traditional is traditional pizza? I, yeah. My point is that it's tradition, tradition and traditional is a very loaded word and it would be very hard to agree on what makes anything traditional, especially in terms of spiritual. I agree. And the vacuum cleaner. Sorry. Well, maybe back to back to autonomy, right? <laughs> to, dra- to drag it all the way back because I am. Um, we've talked a number of times about the type of people that witchcraft attracts, and I do think one of those things is a sort of like an independent spirit or uh, something of a rebellious spirit. I don't. I don't do well if I'm told what I have to think or what I have to do, if it doesn't make sense to me. Um, and if you can't make it make sense to me, I'm a pain in the ass in that particular way. And having coven autonomy is one of the things that allows traditional Wicca to work for me because I don't have to go along with whatever another coven thinks makes perfect sense. I don't have to do, um, or I don't have to believe what another coven or individual believes is the nature of our gods. I can do or believe whatever I want and my coven can do or believe whatever it wants, provided that we hit some small and yet controversial checklist of items that are specifically that are practices, right? Um, and I think this like witchcraft attracts people like like this who who like that kind of thing. And I also think that's why witchcrafts and coven work both um, have a strong requirement in my opinion of having a sense of personal responsibility. Because if you're gonna allow for autonomy, then there's nobody to blame except for yourself. Well put. Period, apparently. Well, after putting that period in it, who are our leaders today? No one jumps in because we're not like, oh, who's, who's, gonna say, who's gonna say what first? <laughs> well, the easy answer is they're coven leaders. Right. Now in greater pagandom, that often ends up being authors the well-known pagans, uh, store leaders. Oh, you open a store and the local community knows who you are. It kind of becomes our, our gathering place. But so, like, I'm sorry. I was just going to say by default, authors and stores, the commercial faces are often who leadership is in greater pagan. But as you said, coven leaders are the leader of the local coven. I was going to say like, we need community leaders, but I think Actually, I don't mean that. What I think I mean is we need community organizers, which is a different thing. Leadership doesn't, leadership positions don't have to be positions of control. Leadership positions can just be positions of organization. It's not power taken, it's power given because you are better at arriving to things on time and um, making a supplies list, right? And I think this is true in teaching. Like teacher leaders are not empowered over other teachers they're leaders of, like of a round table because they're better at organizing or they're slightly more experienced or whatever so like we need every community benefits by having organizers who have a, a very particular skill set I, I agree that we need organizers um, I also agree that it is a skill set that coven leaders need to a degree in order to operate a coven not everyone has that skill, and that's that's okay. But there there is a tendency in the larger pagan. Oh, well, the author said it, and be all about what the big name pagans and authors write or say, 
almost to the point that they are shoved up into a leader a leadership position they may not have sought or even wanted somehow they're in it i think what a lot of people who read books as well who start off reading books about witchcraft and wicca what they forget is that what they're reading is that author's flavor of what they're writing about you know you could have one topic written written by five different authors and they will all have slightly different takes um so i, I think it's just worth mentioning but you know just remember that you're reading something through somebody else's understanding which might again might not be it might not be fully complete you know people have their own right to change what they think and what they believe over time as well so you might get somebody who's written a book really early on in their in their career and then later 10 years down the line look back at it and think what was I writing you know and if if you're still at that 1950s version of Wicca and now we're in 2020 for example 20 not in 2020 we're in 2022 um I'm two years behind everybody else guys I'm really sorry <laughs> it, it, like it's, it's a, there's a massive difference between how they practice and how we practice you know there are some similarities maybe about one I think we, we've established that there's one similarity um tonight but yeah well we're in pandemic craft a lot of the ways covens have learned to work with that deal with that would have been impossible to do back in early wicca because the technology yeah. didn't exist right i think i recall at the beginning of the pandemic how many people were saying traditional wicca can't be taught on zoom wicca can't be taught on zoom like we're just going to stop meeting until this is over and I think that many of us have now evolved to a position of there is a lot of traditional Wicca that can't be taught on Zoom. But what I'm going to do is find all the stuff that can be taught on Zoom and we're going to do that first. And then when I get you in person, we're going to get cut up on skills that like you actually have to be in person to do. Right. I mean, opinions should evolve and change with the times and as needed. Right. Well, in that there's a lot of Wicca, Wicca in its aging is moving beyond being a new religious movement. We're for the first time beginning to have real elder. Like, I mean, not just elder in the, the term that we're saying they're of a certain degree, but elder as in they've been doing this since the early days. And the same tendency to want to put uh, big name pagans or authors on a pedestal sometimes happens to them where you want to elevate your elder. I'm not saying not to respect them or respect the decades of work they have done for the craft but they're human. They they may, may be like all of us, crowned with the stars, but their feet are made of mud, just like ours. There, Sorry, there was, okay. there was something I wanted to say back a smidge um, when, Peter, you were talking about authors and the way that we do sort of promote people who have loud voices in the community, whether that's authors or podcast hosts or what TikTok, TikTok stars. Um, you know, which is if we go back for a second and talk about this idea of coven and personal sovereignty and autonomy, nothing that you hear from anybody, including us, is anything except for information about what they do. There's, I am not speaking from a position of authority on what Alexandrian Wiccans all do except perhaps for a small list of like a few things during that we've, that we might have to try and parse later, but there's nobody who can do that. So if you find yourself repeating what an author or a TikToker or a podcast host says, 
as if it's fact all the time, immutable fact, you're going to find yourself on a really soft ground. Like you don't have a firm foundation to stand on because nobody can say what we are for good. I mean, there's something good about that and there's bad stuff about that, of course, as well. But I do think that that should take some of the shine off, right? People have really good information. We should take what what works, but we should remember that authority only goes so far in a religion of personal autonomy. Um, just speaking as somebody who has put out a book as a Wiccan author, um, there's a lot of emphasis on like your brand and your branding and things like that. And like your book lives and dies with how well you market yourself. Um, and yes, everybody does support each other. Like all of the, like you see authors lifting each other up more than you see them tearing each other down, but it is still very cutthroat out there. Um, and I think it's worth remembering when you're hearing things on podcasts or seeing them on videos, especially from authors, like, these are people trying to sell something and trying to set themselves up in a very specific way, in a very specific flavor. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a good point. It's not, it's not to undermine what people are putting out there. There's a lot of authors who I quite like, and I'm, I like to see what they put out. I like whatever content that they're creating. Um, I'm always curious. Cause I'm like, Oh, like, yeah, I, I agree with that. Or like, Oh, that's interesting. They must do things different. Um, yeah, for sure. Then we do them, you know, it's, it doesn't take the value away. It just takes the, it just takes away some of the surety. Let's, let's talk about elders and the role they should or should not play the practice of the Wicca, the development of the Wicca and where we're going. I think it's important that our elders are there, you know, we look up to our elders, right? We look up to our elders. They are there to guide us. They are there to make sure that they pass on the tradition um properly maybe that's the word I'm, I'm i'm thinking about they're there to pass on the tradition yes i suppose how they received it but then also i think an elder's task is to say right this this is how it is this is the what am i trying to say this they is how the, it is they're they're the mantle holders of the tradition is that what you're right. saying yeah they're the mantle holders of the tradition but i think a good elder will say here is a if you want to run off with it and experiment with it and develop it then I think that should be encouraged as well because I think with with Wicca especially with Wicca we're in danger of it stagnating if we don't develop it and I know James you quite often will say you're getting into religion or you're getting into Wicca um one of two ways I think you're either born into it or you convert that's right yeah that's it there's yeah, the only yeah. ways people that's the only way religion grows yeah Either and if birth if or you're made yeah and and i suppose if people are still passing on the tradition as it was passed on in the 1950s 1960s 1970s that's not going to appeal to a lot of the the younger generation and people that are moving through wicca now um so i think one of the roles of an elder is to say yeah here it is um here's the baseline but then run with it and see how you develop that the, the markers of the, the tradition need to flow on. The craft we're practicing today and the craft they practiced back in the 50s may have many innovations and additions, etc. But the core markers of what makes the Wicca the Wicca are there. And our forebears, who are still with us, kind of hold that. But there's a limit, I think, to it. Um, just like there's a limit to 
what I say when I'm teaching a new seeker or initiate the things they need to practice within the coven and learn Alexandrian craft. Well, I only speak so far and that's, that's the edge of the circle that stops. I think unless you're in my coven, I'm not going to pay too much attention to what you tell me my craft should look like as well. comes back to as well. We can respect our elders without, I guess, being totally dictated to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think also once somebody has attained a certain level of respect within the community or has been in the community for some time, I think there's like a sort of mutual expectation there too, right? I mean, I hope, you know, God's willing, if I'm still doing this in 20 to 30 years and I feel like I deserve the title elder and other people feel I deserve the title elder, that I'm not going to be being like, y'all are doing it wrong. I, I hope that I have enough common sense to be like, you should do whatever you want. And also, can I come over so I don't have to host my own circle and somebody else can cook? That would be great. Um, you know, that I think is the role of elders in the community that we learn from their experience and we enjoy their knowledge and um, like anyone else, you know, see what good stuff they have to say. And for the rest of it, you know, we can continue practicing as we as we will. See, on one hand, I want to be an old curmudgeon high priest who's like back in the 2020s. And on the other hand, I just want to guard. Like you, James, I can't wait to be older so I can take the new initiates back when we were practicing witchcraft in the pandemic. You don't know what you you weren't there. You, you don't know how difficult it was doing a ritual over Zoom. <laughs> in a couple of decades, we'll be like, traditional Wicca can't be taught on a holodeck. They're going to be like, what's Zoom? <laughs> I love it. All right. Was there anything else that we Well, what about passing? If we're not worried too much about placing people on a pedestal or having people dictate things, well, how does it get passed on? Certainly there's some level of them saying, well, here's the way to do it, or we say, here's the way to do it. Um, I know my perspective is you kind of give people the, here's the way, and later they can bust out of that shell and kind of run rogue. Um, But it's still within the parameters of, as I said, markers, but that's me and my perspective. No, I agree with that as well. I think we teach the way, and then again, they're allowed, allowed in air quotes here, guys, they're allowed to go off and, and, and develop it. You know, there's, there's that saying that you can add, but you can't take away. But again, I suppose it, it links back to what I was saying earlier. How much adding can we add until it becomes something different? You know, how, how much adding to that pizza can we do before it turns into a burger? Do we add another, another pizza, pizza base on top? Like, is it still then a pizza? Was it a double pizza? Is it a I, burger? I think the calzone, yeah. <laughs> Have y'all seen deep dish pizza from Chicago? That's like three inches deep. Yeah, exactly. It's basically pizza casserole. You have to eat it with a fork. I, you know, that question of additions always, it, it's come up amongst us a couple of times and it's come up in the wider community and a number of different initiate spaces a few times. And I'm always, I, I just don't think it's a, it's a possible thing to measure, right? I think it's impossible to say, Ah, if you have added this number of rituals to the standard number of rituals, then, you know, or if if 40% of the initiation rite is now made up of other things in addition to what was part of the initiation rite, 
then if your initiation rate takes longer than 90 minutes, then you have added so much stuff that it's not, you know what I mean? Like, it's a very weird line to try and draw. I don't think that you can. And I also just, and I also think that if, if we tried to set something up like that, where we said, listen, you know, people who add too much, um, or there's a certain amount of adding that would just be a different tradition. I think all you're really going to get is a whole lot of people who are going to keep doing what they want and just not talking about it. And to me, that's kind of a shame because I hear all the time from you and from other people, interesting, unique practices that people have to their coven or to their line that I think are really brilliant. And sometimes I think they're brilliant and I want to try them. And sometimes they're brilliant, but they're not for me. That's fine. Um, But I, I would hate to set up some kind of a, a boundary for additions which I really think would really just drive people underground about sharing their practices. And that would be a loss to the community, in my opinion. I don't know if there is a boundary on additions. I think any witch worth their salt can pare down the basic core foundation of the ritual, and it'd be very little there. And I think they can take those same elements and spend hours on each one because there's so much that can be explored and flushed out if they wanted to. But at the end of the day, when you look at it, it's still the same structure, resemblance. It is kind of coming back to what Peter said, just about fucking around and finding out though, isn't it? I mean- You may test that assumption that you're- (laughs) When I I said that earlier, I was thinking about that meme and I'm sure a lot of you've seen it as well. And probably a lot of our listeners, if you hang around witchcraft spaces, there's a circle of mushrooms and it says it, and it says I know yes. G is laughing. Yeah, you've seen it. And and it's like Timmy decided to fuck around and and found out why we don't mess around with mushrooms in a circle. We'll we'll post it. We'll post yeah, it in the group. I like I like that meme quite well. Um, you know that the thing about teaching and learning and passing on and and innovation, um, we are a tradition that has three degrees. Some Alexandrians, of course, give second and third degree at the same time. Um. Some of us do it separately. Some of us have a dedication degree or neophyte degree in the very beginning as well. Right? So there's there's levels here. There's tiers of learning that happen. And I think first degree, most of us are at the level of passing on the tradition. Like this is how you have to do things here. Like you have to learn how to do this here. I expect you to be competent in doing things this way in circle here. And as I think James said earlier, maybe Peter, like, you know, but my teaching goes is within the boundary of the circle. Once you leave circle, you can go do continue raising energy in the way that makes the most sense to you in your personal practice. Right. After first degree or once first degrees hit a certain point, And I think that this is usually when conversations around elevation start taking place um, is when we start encouraging innovation. This is that like true learning happens you said, James, that your teacher told you when the teacher comes off the pedestal. I think most of us have experienced that either late first degree or second degree itch, right? That I see it in people, they pass a certain point and they start getting like, well, why do we do things this way? And why does my high priestess insist on? And, And it's like, oh, you're getting ready to hive. Like that's what that you're being pushed out of the nest or you're pushing yourself out of the nest, right? The teaching takes on a whole nother level of fuck around and find out. You now have enough base knowledge, foundational knowledge that you can innovate and mess with the parameters and see what works and what doesn't work. And then people go off and they make their own mistakes running their own coven or they make their own mistakes 
trying to play around with the rituals format and go like, oh no, <laughs> I can't cut that out. Or, oh no, like I can't add this and it doesn't work anymore. Um, but I do think like the teaching differs based on the knowledge base, the experience level and, and the elevation or the degree of your, of your students. I think that when you start learning, you realize you know so little and you start learning more and you branch off and then that branch has another branch and that branch has another branch. And yes, you need that basic skill set, that basic foundation in order for you to be able to go off and innovate. But if you don't have that basic and that, that, that basic set, it's difficult to, to go off and to innovate. So yes, at th- first degree, lots of us will teach it. Yes, this is the way you do it here in circle. If that becomes your automatic practice at, at home, I know I've, I've mentioned in previous podcasts that just so I don't have to keep learning lots and lots of new things, like my current practice is is also my personal practice just because I'm really lazy and I can't I can't be dealing with learning different things all over again um and then you and then at second and third you get that okay I know all of this information I can now branch off I can now innovate but yeah really similar experiences to you so right after elevation uh second and third or third depending on how you slice that pop and the Connecticut fair subline of the fair line um that first period right after hiving you're basically blacklisted i guess from your your mother coven so that you can go off and marinate in your own understanding of things for lack of a better word um and i'm gonna tell you i learned a ridiculous amount that first year where my wife and i if we needed to make a phone call we could but we're third degrees 1200 miles from our upline and we just delved in to the thing. And that's like that's one of the markers of that subline, kind of what they did. I've known Covens who've done that as well, who who said, you know, for a year and a day, we're not gonna circle with our upline at all, or we're not going to um We don't talk about Bruno. <laughs> exactly so, yeah. And it, it's a it's an interesting idea. I think um it, I would find it really sad, but partially I would find it really sad because when you're a new coven, oftentimes you are very small and you have a real lack of experts. And it's nice if you can call your kin and be like, Hey, I, we, we're putting on a ritual. Like I want, I want to do a ritual and I am one person. Can I please come visit? Um, you know, until you get all your initiates initiated and whatnot, and you can really get moving. I'm extremely grateful that I, I, I can't express enough how much it has helped me realize what autonomy than to just be let loose. And it's extremely empowering when you realize you were just doing. Well, I think that about brings us to the end of this episode. And today we talked about pedestals and plunges, including charismatic leaders, how they fit into orthopraxis religion, who was the king of the witches, whether or not we need a position, pagan and initiate authors, leaders in the wider community, what happens when the teacher comes off the pedestal, and the importance of coven and personal autonomy and sovereignty, all within the framework of initiatory Wicca. Now, before we leave you, I have a quote from Maxine Sanders from her blog that she published in 2017, and she said, it is wise to know thyself when entering the temple of the mystery. A true vocation will not be denied, although the path of the initiate 
It's not always easily transversed. We are all different. The levels of potential, speciality, and capability within the initiate are diverse. No individual is of greater value than another within the circle of the craft. So thank you for listening. As a reminder, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook as Circle Talk for Witches, as four as in the number, Twitter as Circle for Witches, or email us at circletalkforwitches at gmail. If you have any questions, queries, thoughts, or ideas for future discussion, please do keep in touch. We'd love to hear from you. From all of us at Circle Talk, Merry Meet, Merry Part, and Merry Meeting. You can get off the broom that we forgot to say get on. Ah! <gasps>